Okay, hello and uh, welcome to Ringo Rama, Ringo Star podcast. Uh, my guest today, he's done a lot of things. He's worked with, of course, Jellyfish. He's worked in Dex Band. He's just done a lot of things. And it's Roger Manning Jr. Thank you, Lucas. Um, yeah, well, I'd better have done a lot of things. I'm about to turn 55. So if I hadn't done a lot of things, I'd be would have been sitting on my butt for the last uh, 35 years. And uh, that doesn't interest me. I've had a lot of fun in music um, and um, a lot of hard work too. But yeah. uh, it's work that I love getting up for in the morning. Uh, and, and one of those journeys, of course, brought me briefly crossing paths with uh, Ringo. Yeah, working on uh, this album, Time Takes Time, in uh, mm -hmm. 92. Mm -hmm. So there were, I think there were five songs written that's been stated in interviews. Yeah, uh, we demoed up five songs, my partner Andy and myself, um, because we didn't know what Ringo was looking for, but Don was the producer of that album, uh, had been alerted to Jellyfish, and thankfully he was a fan. So he thought it might be a good idea to try to bring one of our song ideas to Ringo. The album was co-written with a variety of people. So it, it wasn't unusual for him to ask uh, outsiders to submit something. Um, and uh, we spent, gosh, we probably spent a good month demoing up those songs because uh, we very much wanted to land that opportunity for obvious reasons. And uh, what else? Oh, so the demos we released on the Jellyfish fan club box set that came out, I don't know, in 2006, 2007, something like that. It was around like 2002 or so. And they're also on, I think, oh, yeah. a Spilt Milk Deluxe Edition, which I don't have. I only have the Billy Button one because that one's out of print. Yes, all this stuff is unfortunately out of print. The, um, the record companies you know, before they do another run, they have to calculate if they think they can uh, make their money back. If it's, you know, if it's worth their while. So uh, who, who the hell knows why they didn't um, want to do another run because all the initial runs sold out uh, very quickly, in fact, which was wonderfully flattering. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, uh, you should be able to get hold of those at some point. Uh, I mean, I can even send you MP3s, but if you haven't heard them all. Oh, there's like YouTube links and there's like uh, there's right. big YouTube videos that are like the uh, spilt milk demos or something. Okay. So you've heard them all. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So you can tell how uh, different they were and the different flavors and approaches we were giving to Ringo in hopes he would like at least one of them. <laughs> Yeah, there was uh, I Don't Believe You, which was the one that ended up on the record, which definitely is like, it's basically like a Barbara Soul era pastiche. Uh, yeah, I mean, every, every song we submitted has some kind of, you know, uh, influential Ringo moment. I mean, obviously he had his different eras of uh, artistic offerings the way the Beatles did. Um, and he goes through different periods. We thought it was important to make reference to those genres, but uh, of course, attempt to give him something fresh uh, and uh, yet familiar for that 92 album. It's tough to figure out what the other demos were because it was never really, sometimes it's hard to find like which ones they were like, it's not really stated in much places. Uh, what, sorry, what was your comment about what the demos? What the other demos, like what, what song titles were there? Cause there are a lot of songs that you, you don't have, you don't have the song titles to the demo. I have the song titles. Like you've looked, I've looked on a whole bunch of places and it's like, Oh, there's five demos. One of them said, I don't believe you. Uh, yeah. I don't think I can remember them off the top of my head. Uh, one was, uh, the, the other ones I suspected were Ringo demos are, uh, I need love. Right. That's correct. And uh long time ago. Correct. And I think maybe Running For Our Lives could have been one. Uh, no, that was not a Ringo demo. That was actually a demo for uh, Robin Zander of Cheap Trick for his solo album, mm -hmm. which unfortunately didn't get picked up. But um, so the two other ones are Watching the Rain. Mm 
Oh yeah, I've heard that. And a song called "I Need Love." Oh, I've already I already mentioned "I Need Love" being one of those. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah, I think that's five. That's four because I think "I Need Love" twice. Uh, so you already put "Long Time Ago" in there. I got "Long Time Ago," "I Need Love," "Watching the Rain." And then I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Uh, sorry, I don't remember what the fourth one is off the top of my head. Yeah. I mean, really, if you took all those demos, they're really like album quality. Some bands would just put out that as an album. That's how good the demos were because it was like meticulous. Uh, thank you for that compliment. Uh, I mean, they do sound like demos. You certainly can compare uh, what happened with I Don't Believe You to the final product. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, people's expectations and what is floating around out there, uh, a lot of standards have changed. Uh, we were just trying to meet our own standards, but thank you for that compliment. So was this after Jason had left and uh, Chris was dismissed? That's correct. Um, in fact, uh, yeah, we got, we got this offer uh, right after all that happened. So it, uh, as sad as it was to see the other guys go, um, this was a bit of positive news in our lives and we uh, were happy to rise to the occasion. Yeah, so how is it like uh, getting, like giving the songs to Ringo? Did he like, was it like uh, someone just played the demo for him? Or was it like you went up to him and said, this is how the song goes? No, typically what happens, like I said, is this came through the producer. So Ringo didn't know us from a hole in the wall. Uh, Don was his producer who was coordinating all the songs for the record and the whole kind of vision for the record. Um, he's the one that we submitted the songs to for him to kind of go through first. Uh, and then I don't know if he played all of them for Ringo or if he just played the one that he liked. Um, but uh, yeah, that's typically how it went. You were also in the uh, video for Way of the World in like the little like scale or whatever on the other side. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was a trip and a half. Very, very unexpected, obviously, because we didn't co-write that song. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I believe we had, we had sung some background vocals on that and a handful of other songs. Yeah, and I think like half of the songs on that record it's like you and uh, Andy and like Brian Wilson. That's kind of the backing vocal team on some of those songs. That did happen. Uh, that was an incredible, very quick, swift moment that uh, you try, try to capture in your mental camera because there's no iPhones back then. Uh, and um, uh, it's just a really great memory that uh, with each passing day is fading. <laughs> but uh, thankfully there's the recordings. And um, when it came time to do the video, I have no idea whose idea it was to ask Andy and I to be in it. I, I suppose because we sang backgrounds uh, and we were certainly a contemporary group. Um, somebody, somebody thought it was a good idea and, and it all came to happen. Again, it, a total miracle uh, th that actually made it from the drawing board to the finish line. So after uh, the album came out and you had some of the deck and some of the demos just didn't turn up on the album, did you ever consider putting the, doing those demos with Spilt Milk? Uh, never, because they were deliberately, when Andy and I created them, we were focused again, like I said, on creating a sound that ideally lent itself to Ringo World. Um, while we were absolutely uh, supportive of our work and believed in it and stood by it, uh, it had nothing to do with the body of work we were assembling for Spilt Milk and, and what we were trying to very specifically and intentionally create for that album. Yeah, because some demos like uh, Family Tree, which is probably one of the best Jellyfish songs, just didn't really fit with the ethos of that record. That is exactly right, and that's exactly why it was left off of Spilt Milk. We all, we all agreed with our producer team uh, that, yeah, aesthetically it was just too much of a, you know, a, an odd beast to uh, be
be with that other family of songs. Mm -hmm. So when you go in to do uh, a record like uh, Spilt Milk or Belly Button or so, did you already have like in your mind the way the demos were going to be and how that you didn't do any of our studio recordings and it was just like the demos are going to be the album and then they record basically just like replicas of the demos. Uh, well, not really. So the whole purpose, especially back then with demos, uh, because almost no work was ever done on a computer back then, the software didn't exist to record into your computer. So we had whatever the equipment was of the day, uh, specifically recording onto a cassette multi-track tape. Um, we used a little bit of computer, what small software, software there was for sequencing. And then the rest were a variety of keyboards, uh, other players, um, and uh, samplers, primitive samplers. Um, we knew that we had very high aspirations for spilt milk. And the only way for us to be very clear on our ideas was to get them out on paper, so to speak, first. So the demo process, more importantly, uh, served Andy and I to flesh out all of our ideas. Our ideas. And we, had, we knew from being in the studio several times before that you can't, you can't dilly-dally, you can't be undecisive. Uh, there's no time and you don't have any money to just show up at the studio and go, all right, what are we going to do with, with no plan? So we learned the hard way from our mistakes the first time around. If you, if you don't have, at least go into the studio with a solid plan that you believe in, uh, which inevitably is going to change for a variety of reasons. Uh, you're going to do yourself and the project and your collaborators a huge disservice. And you're probably going to go bankrupt in the process and the record company is going to cut off all the funding because you just can't take forever. Yeah. Unless I you were, you know, Madonna back in the day. The purpose of Spill Health was just because you knew record contracts were fragile and stuff just to get everything you wanted on a record. Right. So we knew if we rolled in, with a solid game plan and examples of what we were at least hearing. That's, that was a huge starting point. So you're, you're not entirely incorrect. So you can take any of those demos and we launched the album recording from them. But along the way, um, changes were made, you know, of all kinds. Uh, but the main goal was to take those demos, which you could describe as maybe two-dimensional and make them as three-dimensional and as grand and as wide and as high and as low and as deep and every which way as sensational as po you possibly could, which the studio can allow for, a professional studio with professional uh, craftsmen can allow for without uh, destroying the initial sentiment of the tune. That was the most important thing for the demo to capture the sentiment, intention, uh, emphasis of that song, and ideally not lose that when you go to flush it out in the studio. It's a it's a huge balancing act. It's a ton of work. Uh, it's really exhaustive, and can be if you allow it to be. And don't forget about it. It can be great fun. <laughs> yeah. So just a little bit of sidetracking here. I understand that. Uh... Harry Nielsen was a bit of a fan of yours in the uh, early 90s, and you had actually met up with him just very slightly before he died to discuss, like, work on a, his tribute album and uh, possibly even writing with him. Uh, close, but not quite. So I'll clear up that, uh, I guess, internet legend. Um, we had many fans in the record business who knew people like Ringo. Uh, there was another fan of ours from a record company, and also, do you know? Uh, <laughs> do you know the actor Sylvester Stallone? Yeah, so he's he was Rocky, uh, <clears throat> and he's done many many action films. Uh, he has a brother. I'm trying to remember his first name. Frank Stallone. I think he Thank had a, he had a hit on the Staying Alive soundtrack. <laughs> you are very well-researched young lad. Um, so he happened to be friends with Harry Nilsson. Don't ask me why. They come from very different worlds. They did but they were sessions together in like late 1980. There you go. So they were uh, social buddies. They were, they were friends. And apparently uh, some record company person, I don't remember who, and Frank Stallone 
brought to Harry's attention are banned jellyfish. He didn't know about us at all. And he was intrigued enough to come out of his house because he was uh, a bit handicapped with a cane and so forth at that time in his life. I don't think he was going out much. Uh, but thankfully, they convinced him he needed to come see our band. We played in Los Angeles uh, in the, well, it would have been the summer of 1993, I think. And uh, he came out and after the show, we got to uh, meet him. Uh, he was very complimentary, very sweet. Um, and, you know, he was aware that we had worked with Ringo. And I think he was fascinated by the possibility of working with some younger musicians uh, and maybe getting excited about doing some material. So all these other people were doing the talking. I mean, Harry was very soft spoken. I, I don't even know if he, you know, wanted to be there or wanted to get home to bed or what, but uh, uh, he was excited at the possibility that somebody threw out of when we got back from tour to possibly get together and work on collaborating, throwing some song ideas around and see if anything came of it, which we all agreed was a great idea. Everybody was happy. Thank you. We shook hands. Thanks for coming to the show. What an honor it is to meet you, sir. You're one of our biggest influences. <clears throat> and then we all went our separate ways, including Jellyfish going back uh, touring America. And then unfortunately during those four months, Harry passed away. So there was no there was no talk of a tribute record yet because he hadn't he hadn't died. <laughs> uh, so we came back to town, uh, and not only was our own band on the verge of breaking up, which was very sad and very trying, but we had heard that one of our heroes had just passed away, and he said he wanted to write songs with us. So we were we were very very heartbroken in all respects, um, and that never materialized. Uh, thankfully, we were invited to be on the. Uh, solo record and uh, I started the tribute album and we finished uh, think about your troubles before jellyfish finally broke up it was the last it was the very last thing we did uh, I think we we completed it at the beginning of April in 1994 and we were we ended the band at the end of 1994 so uh, the way kind of went out with a band as it it's like that he was on hard times at that point financially and uh some people came up to him and asked about just the tribute record to just give, get up some money for him. Mm. And I think he was quoted as saying that he wanted you to be in it. I don't think that's how it really went, but that's how the uh, internet describes it. Yeah, I don't know for a fact. Uh, if he said that, obviously, that's deeply touching. Um, uh, just the, again, miraculous opportunity to meet him at all um and exchange pleasantries with him and you know have have, have him having stayed for the duration of our hour and a half set or whatever it was and uh, which is a long time for anybody even a fan and uh you know be there at the end hanging out and and uh be as complimentary as he was that's just you know i couldn't ask for anything more uh so very grateful. I understand going back to the uh, belly button tour, you were playing unreleased songs that weren't, uh, besides something like Bye Bye Bye, you were playing unreleased songs that weren't even on the uh, belly button demos. That's correct. These were ideas that were um, on standby, if you will. These were ideas that were maybe not finished all the way. Uh, for example, we played a song um, <laughs> We played a song uh, at least every other night, certainly on the Belly Button Tour, that we tentatively called Mr. Late because that was like a working title. Uh, there were no lyrics to that song. Um, we would make up gibberish and mumble things and sing our melodies every night for that song because uh, uh, typically Andy wrote the lyrics and he had not uh, found the time or inspiration to sit down and complete that, which was totally understandable. We were going a thousand miles an hour with everything on our plate. Uh, particularly the touring. Uh, yeah, there were, there were three or four songs and a bunch of covers um, that we would bring into the set because we only had the songs from Belly Button and you couldn't, you couldn't play an hour set. Songs and, some, and maybe like one or two songs was a little too like, strenuous to do live. That's exactly right. So at, we had uh, like eight, seven or eight tunes for a set and that wasn't going to fill up an hour even. 
so we, you know, we enjoyed bringing all these other ideas in, but uh, yeah, a song like Bye Bye Bye, we got a chance to play live and work out all the uh, things we didn't like about it so that when we recorded it for Spilt Milk, we knew exactly what we wanted to do. Yeah, so uh, really some people say that it's very much like a travesty that you guys didn't really do a third record. There's really two answers to that, in my opinion, is that it had kind of run its course out, but even though what would have happened, it might not have been as good. Might have lowered the legacy or something. And there really kind of is a third record if you take stuff like these live covers and stuff, and then you take some of these demos, and there's even like a Japanese album that's just exclusive to Japan. Yeah, I forget what that Japanese one is all about. I don't know. Uh, I think it's just a new mistake, and it's got like nine stuff, and it's even got like ignorance and bliss and stuff like that on it. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, yeah, no, I'm thankful that all that stuff is out there for the fans. Uh, obviously, we all wanted to do a third, fourth record. And I mean, uh, I would have loved to have seen Jellyfish be my entire life. Uh, that wasn't in the cards or the stars or however you want to look at it. And uh, Life is going to present uh, opportunities and curveballs and challenges and you just meet them as they come. You can't, uh, nobody's got a crystal ball. So uh, I was just very, very thankful to this day uh, for that brief opportunity. I mean, Jellyfish beginning to end was about a five-year window, um, and I couldn't be more grateful for that and all the, all the territory that we did cover while we were together. Yeah, it really goes from uh, just through this. This is basically like the uh, – because since I don't have, like, uh, the book, because the book's out of print too. And a lot of things I really just, you really have to use like something like the booklet for like just recording dates. And it really goes from uh, the recording of the uh, demo of Now She Knows She's Wrong in late 88 to uh, Think About Your Troubles in April 94. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so loosely six years. It's not really that much of a time, but there's really a lot of material if you count like all the live covers and the stuff you did on like Japanese TV and all this stuff and the uh, new live albums from a few years ago. Uh, yeah. I mean, we were in our early twenties, very, very hungry. We had a, a lot more energy and just powering, man. This was like, you know, this was our one shot and we were going to literally kill ourselves trying to give it our all. Uh, which I feel everybody did. Everybody who was ever in that band, everybody who ever contributed in any way to that group, uh, I believe really gave totally of, the, of themselves. And I think the, the art reflects that. Yeah. Some people say that the uh, image of the band, like all this, you know, just the image might have hurt the band with all the videos and stuff. Do you think that? Uh, absolutely, but I have to, you know, talk about the whole picture. Uh, for every fan that we, you know, for, for every fan that heard the music and went, wow, what's this? And then saw what we look like and said, boo, I hate these people now. They look like clowns. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think, I think that we always used to joke there were no jellyfish fans on the fence. There were no medium jellyfish fans. You either totally got what we were about and what we were putting out there, not only in terms of music, but our presentation, our live show, our artwork, our videos, everything. You really, I mean, to us, it all made collective sense. It was one giant package. Uh, that's what the fans always talk about. Uh, they, they really enjoyed and were drawn in by all aspects of the group. And then, of course, for some people, it wasn't for them, like, like any band that comes along. What's it like doing an uh, almost reunion with uh, your new project, The Licorice Quartet, which has, I think it's got the three non-Andy members of the Spilt Milk lineup. That's correct, uh-huh. What was the question? Uh, what was it like getting those people back together? Because I know you did Imperial Drag with, uh, I think, Eric. Yeah, so Eric and I had a good four-year run together post-Jellyfish. Um, which of course had its highs and lows like any band. So I, I'd already done this with Eric. I mean, we already worked our asses off and went to the ends of the earth for that project. Uh, and 
Tim Smith, I had loosely played with post jellyfish and had, and we, we certainly remained friends, but yeah, the distance, him being in Atlanta and traveling with other groups, we never had an opportunity to get a, a side project together or anything together, which is why I reached out to Tim in 2017 to say, hey, before we turn old and gray and die, wouldn't it be great to, uh, you know, put a writing project together since you and I never really created the opportunity to do that. And he agreed and he said, I would love to extend this invitation to Eric if you think that's a good idea, because I think he would add yet another dimension to this uh, experiment. Because uh, Eric had worked with Tim briefly in, in the past as well. So we reached out to Eric and he agreed. So suddenly we were a trio. Uh, and like you said, it happened to be the last incarnation of the Jellyfish Band. So, uh, and we had certainly messed around with song ideas and stuff out on the road, but just we never had the time, money, um, or it just wasn't pragmatic for us to start a group long distance you know, again, pre-internet. Um, and we felt that this time in our lives was the right time to do that. And we started it in 2017 and have been, you know, piecemealing it, putting together over the years, which has been great. And the only way we could do it while we did our other jobs that we all do, uh, traveling with other people, working for other people. Um, so it's been very rewarding getting back together with those guys uh, and getting to know them in a way that I never knew them, except Eric really, I guess, uh, in Jellyfish. I understand that you also had another studio musician on Spilt Milk, Lyle Workman. How close was he to really being a member of the band or was he just like a studio hand for some of the songs? Uh, we had, well, I mean, Spilt Milk had God, I don't know, 15 studio musicians or more. I mean, you're not going to count the 22-piece orchestra <laughs> that plays on uh, Russian Hill. Um, but um, no, so you had uh, Lyle Workman, John Bryan, uh, both doing, taking care of the guitar duties. So I would see, say each of those guys played on about half the record, sometimes on the same song. Uh, T-Bone Wolk uh, shared bass duties with Tim on... Uh, a lot of the material. Um, those are the those are the big guys that are, were around for a long time that were, you know, consummate artists in their own right. That we were very very privileged to have be a part of that record since we weren't a complete band at that point. It's just Andy and I. Um, we were very lucky they were available and interested. Um, but nobody, none of them were ever considered as band members. Uh, we were looking for something very specific, uh, particularly in the vocal department. Uh, and that was going to be a tall order to fill. And we knew that. Um, because if you can sing that good, you're probably fronting your own band. <laughs> and um, uh, we met Eric Dover through a random sequence of events. Uh, he lived in Birmingham, Alabama, and he came out to basically meet with us and audition. And uh, his guitar chops were fine. Um, I wouldn't say that they were impressing us, but what impressed us was he could sing anything. We, we could give him any harmony part, and because he's a male tenor and he could sing in a higher register in full voice, it balanced out all the different other voices that we had for harmonies. Andy, Tim, and myself all have very different voices with different ranges. Uh, and Eric was kind of the missing piece to that. Yeah, he also worked as a Slash's singer for a while during the Imperial Drag era. That's correct. So what was it like uh, getting your brother in to do some of the, uh, like, working during the Belly Button Tour? Because you couldn't really have gone out as a three-piece without, like, a bass player. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we, let's see. Um, so the question again was about my brother and, wh and what and degree like, was he involved? And what was it like having him in the band just as like a bass player? 
and just like uh, well uh when when jason left uh, the touring the touring was coming to an end for belly button anyway so we went right into demo mode for spilt milk and my brother played uh on a good portion of that as the bass player and then during that time it became obvious to all parties that uh, it was time for him to make his exit <laughs> for a bunch of reasons i won't bore you with and frankly is nobody's business so um uh, yeah, that's why uh, we then found ourselves without a bass player and, and then continued to demo up stuff. And then we met Tim while we were demoing. But again, he was in Atlanta. So Tim didn't join us until it was time to record Spilt Milk. And that's when he started contributing bass parts and ideas to that album. Yeah, I understand that uh, you had a really good producing engineering team in Albie Galutin and uh, Jack. And how much really create, how much really input did they have? Like as you're recording, were you open to just having them say like, how, like, whoa, just felt like asking for something. Um, well, the reason we worked with them two times in a row on both records was because um, certainly on Belly Button, they demonstrated that they were more than equipped uh, and highly skilled craftsmen that we absolutely wanted their talents to uh, influence how Belly Button was going to come out. Um, we learned a lot from them working on that record and brought what we had learned to the creation of Spilt Milk. Um, their roles changed more on Spilt Milk, but they still worked as much and were still as important. Um, there were things that Andy and I learned about arranging and what we wanted to do sonically that we could talk more intelligently about, thankfully. Uh, but those, those records were definitely, you know, the, the four of us, uh, sorry, Spilt Milk specifically was the four of us, me, Andy, Jack, and Albie, you know, made those records. Uh, and every, everybody, you know, one day you'd show up to a studio and to the studio and somebody might have a lot to say and a, was a, uh, a big influence on where the song went that day. And the next day it was somebody else bringing their voice to the forefront and influencing the direction of the tune. How much input did uh, Jason have when you were making the record? Like, what, because I know you and Andy wrote most of the songs. Some of them are just exclusively Andy. But was he like... Did he just throw in guitar solos or something? Oh, God, no. No, no, no. Uh, so, again, uh, the demos for Belly Button started with just Andy and myself. We auditioned several other guitar players before bringing Jason, inviting him uh, to be a part of the process. And uh, those guitar players, it just didn't work out for a variety of reasons. Uh, we even auditioned some bass players, didn't work out. Um, and so Andy and I actually demoed up the four, four songs first, just the two of us and miscellaneous guitar players. Uh, then Jason came up and helped us complete the next eight demos, which were everything from uh, King is Half Undressed to I Want to Stay Home. Um, and um, uh, basically, Andy and I being the writers, we had lots of ideas and suggestions and would kind of try to produce the guitar playing through him. But Jason being the guy he is and completely a one man show to begin with had no shortage of ideas, thankfully. I mean, that's one of the things uh, I enjoyed about collaborating with him in that respect. Um, so the demo process, my memory is that it went very fast uh, because there, somebody always had an idea and Jason was very quick about trying those ideas and concocting a variety of options. I mean, he's very much like a session guitarist in that respect. Um, so yeah, that, that, that process was fairly smooth sailing as that process goes. How hard was it when it came time to uh, sequence the demos and present them to how they would be recorded? How hard was it to choose? Because there is 16 demos and there's only, 10 songs on the album. 
me and Andy knew which 10 songs we wanted. That was pretty clear. We, we already knew which songs we felt were the weak links or just didn't belong on the album. Like yeah, you and some I of the songs in this demo disc are, they're quite What's that? What's that? Some of the songs in this demo disc, they just don't really fit with the atmosphere. Uh, well, they, they, who knows now why we left them off? I mean, we probably had reason. I mean, obviously we had reasons that made sense to us at the time. Um, sequencing the album didn't happen until we finished the record. So then it was a matter of what's going to be our big introduction. You know, what's, what's the first music that people hear uh, if they're listening to the CD from an unknown group? Uh, versus what the record company was telling us they thought they might want to release as the first radio single and go to MTV and video and all that stuff. Um, and all of that was challenging and difficult. And, you know, anytime you try to have so many people weighing in on something and doing it democratically, it can slow the process down. But it also can speed it up in other instances. Um, and it was, it was fun. You know, it was fun to uh, go through all these little obstacles and challenges that every band in the history of doing what we do has ever done. And it was uh, just such an honor to be given a chance uh, and have a major label bankroll that chance and have people believe in you to help realize that dream. So what was it like with these, with these archival races where like ranging from something like fan club 20 years ago to uh, Murray issues just a couple of years ago. What was it like, uh, like making sure those archival races were good and doing the interviews for them and such? I, I couldn't understand the question fully. What was uh, the, so what was it like uh, helping the record companies putting, put together these archive releases that have come out? Well, we were very much involved in the spilt, uh, sorry, the fan club box set, the four CD box set. Uh, the record company... 600 bucks now on eBay. Uh, yeah, which is ridiculous. Um, I'm very sorry that didn't get printed up even more, but uh, I'm very thankful that so many people were appreciative of it and interested in it. Um, so it was fun to put those together, and especially uh, to talk about the liner notes and quotes and what the layout was going to look like. And, you know, a lot of the... Uh, fan club memorabilia you see on the photo on the inside, you know, we provided and gathered from different sources and it was fun to go back through uh, old boxes and memorabilia. Um, and then we would all get on calls and discuss at various times what the layout might look like. Uh, we had a very intelligent fan at the record company who I think did a great job in putting a package together, producing that package. And with these newer reissues, you have stuff like uh, the belly button and spilt milk reissues, which show, at least for the belly button one, it's not as big as the full-on gatefold image, but you still see a little bit more. And the spilt milk image has the uh, extended sides. Oh, okay. I didn't even notice that. So, good job. <laughs> and uh, just so you know, I have to get off the phone. Uh, the phone. I have to get off this call at one. So, I know. That's why I'm, I've got like I've got like 10 minutes of maximizing my time. I know. You're going a thousand miles an hour. Uh, go for it. I'll try to make my answers uh, quicker. So just going through this demo, just going through these demos, like what was the uh, idea to do something like uh, the cover of Season of the Witch that you did on those belly button demos? So there was an A&R person at Atlantic Records named John Carter who basically signed Jellyfish. So Andy and I had been participants in another uh, San Francisco Bay Area band um, that it wasn't even really our group. Uh, we were more, I certainly was more of a sideman keyboard player. I, I didn't do any writing. Um, and when that band broke up, that band had been signed, signed to Atlantic Records by John Carter. When that band broke up, thankfully, John Carter said, well, I'm interested in hearing the demos that Andy and Roger are doing and he liked them and he was the one that introduced us to Albie Galutin and he's the one that uh, bankrolled some uh, well certainly our first some, some recordings some early recordings so we could begin the album process but he had to convince you know the higher-ups at Atlantic and the people who were going to write the checks that this was going to be a good idea 
uh, one of the things he suggested that we do way back in the Beatnik Beach days was to cover the Donovan song Season of the Witch, uh, which we agreed would be a good experiment to conduct. So almost, almost as a thank you to him for believing in us, and, and it, we're curious to conduct that experiment, we demoed up, we, we created an arrangement for Season of the Witch. Yeah, that That's also has a, a bit of, for what it's worth, at the end, with some like extremely wacky 80 synthesizers on it. Uh, well, I don't remember any synthesizers. There's lots of uh, organ, lots of 60s combo uh, organ. Well, I, on the, uh, well, it's like, it sounds a lot like just like synthesizer, because I know it was like, for the demos, it was all like, art. it was a lot of more artificial stuff, but then for the album, it was like you were able to put. Oh, you're probably thinking of the brass. The trumpets and, and so forth. Yeah, which are those are samples. They're not they're not synthesizers. They're they're mediocre recordings of uh, actual instruments. But sampling technology was what it was, and yeah, I mean it can it can often sound fake in like a synthesizer. Yeah, trying yeah, to do trumpets. How uh, like on demos and just listening to other people's music, there there was all these instruments and really interesting sounds and then going to do the belly button album you were able to rent instruments and like get those sounds on your own record how, how was that what was that like uh well thankfully it it appeared that we would have enough money from the record company to hire real musicians who could play their real instrument so you'd hire a trumpet player and he'd show up with his trumpets as yeah as opposed to renting the instruments, because none of us play, none of us play uh, brass well enough to uh, do that. So, um, uh, well, we had all grown up playing in bands. So we grew up both in junior high, high school, college, in orchestras, playing in marching bands, playing in jazz bands, having the real instruments blasting in your ear all the time. Uh, that's what people did before computers. So it was the only option. So we had lots of experience with that. So it wasn't particularly novel to us. Uh, uh, it was only exciting because the players we hired were so damn good. And to hear our ideas be performed by real musicians uh, is, is always um, <laughs> just a really pleasant surprise. So, yeah. You also had, uh, I think, Steve McDonald from uh, Red Cross on that album, just on one or two songs. Yeah, he played on two songs. We were a huge fan of not only him, but him and his brother and the band Red Cross, uh, which were very inspirational to Jellyfish in numerous ways. Uh, and we had a mutual friend who introduced us to Steve. And we, we just got uh, bold and thought he would be perfect for a couple tunes and asked him if he wanted to hire to play on it, which, I mean, he wasn't like a, you know, a traveling session musician or anything like that. I think he was a bit surprised, but he uh, rose to the occasion. He, he was uh, flattered and he killed it. He just did. I can't think of anybody who would have done a more appropriate and better job. Yeah. There's also some, uh, like just in the early nineties, there's in between by about and spoken up, there's like EPs and a lot of like live singles and like promo stuff. How, involved were you with that type of stuff or was it just a record company affair? Uh, usually the record company promotion department has a loose game plan or ideas as the record marketing is evolving uh, and thankfully we were consulted. Uh, I think they understood that we wanted to have our hands in as much of the creative presentation of the marketing as possible um, and uh, so yeah, we certainly were involved to a degree, but I mean, they weren't our, our ideas from top to bottom. Some of those things were quite experimental and had gimmicks. Like sometimes it would be like a 3D compact disc or it would be a two CD set or even like something like the Vaz YC single, there's just confetti in it. Uh, we had a lot of fun and thankfully the, again, the record company put forth the extra dollars because all that stuff costs extra money, particularly when you're printing up thousands of copies. Um, we had grown up in an era where record companies were doing that for their artists. It was very commonplace to include some kind of promotional bonus. Uh, typically it was a poster or a little booklet 
Um, yeah, in like every Paul McCartney album from the seventies, there's posters and even in stuff like Venus and Mars, there's stickers and stuff. Yeah, exactly right. So, so as children, we expected that when an artist put out a record or, or did something promotional like that, that was just what happened. It was an extra cool feature for the fans. Uh, that of course had fallen by the wayside, probably for mostly financial reasons. And uh, we thought it would be terribly exciting, particularly with the gatefold album idea to, to try to continue to include those things. I mean, we were really, you know, speaking to our generation uh, and having fun with that. And that's what that's all about. Yeah, so even on like uh, Belly Button, there's CDs gate with the gatefold and there's some CDs that don't have it. So it's like, it's like usually only the Japanese ones that you'll get like a full gatefold on. Mm. Yeah, well, see, so the uh, Japanese particularly, they're, they're typically their own, they're almost their own record label. Uh, and often, right, so, so whatever Virgin Records looks like in the U.S. and England, they may have very little to do with what Virgin Japan looks like. Uh, so often, you know, you're dealing with a whole different team of people who have a different bank account for the album, uh, different people with different ideas. Uh, again, thankfully, the Japanese fell in love with what we were doing and what we were attempting to give the fans, and they were very, very supportive. In, in allowing us that extravagant creativity. I feel like in a lot of this, you guys were very close to like your fans and your fan club because they're like, just on your website, they're like, you can get like fan club stickers or like they had like a promo cassette and all this stuff. There are very, there are very few of those items uh, left. I've kept quite a few of them over the years. It was a quite an ordeal to not only hang on to some of those things, but make sure they didn't get damaged as I moved from location to location over the years. Uh, take good care of them. Um, and uh, I decided at this time in my life to share some of those with the fans if they're interested. And so that's what that, that's what that recent uh, uh, sharing was all about. And um, there, there may be more, I don't know. I'm, I'm, still, <laughs> I'm still looking uh, through uh, storage and, and um, what's you know what i want to hang on to and how many multiple copies i have of x y and z but uh, yeah it was a again another fun way to connect with the fans which is something that a lot of musicians uh are invited to do these days especially when you can't tour and all those things those typical things so we're almost out of time here i've got like one or two more questions so what was it like doing those videos because some of those videos are extremely outlandish, especially Baby's Gone Map with all those blue screen effects. There's actually a video on the internet of uh, you, you guys like jumping that's all synced up. Yeah, so um, the videos were terribly exciting, uh, but for us, uh, I'll speak for myself, they were very high pressure. And what I mean by that was to make a video that even looked half decent, like ours, cost a tremendous amount of money. Uh, and the goal was to try to make as high quality and as fancy and as what well, you tried to make a video that made some kind of statement. Now you could do that with lo-fi strategies, but at that time MTV almost had like a uh, quality control. If your video didn't appear to have a certain standard of quality, they wouldn't even entertain playing it. Uh, if you, if you made it on your dad's video camera in your garage, they weren't, that's not how you were going to get played. That, that would be a trend that would happen later, but not in the early 90s when we were attempting to get on MTV. So the record company knew this and put a lot of money into these videos. Um, we, making the videos kind of caught us off guard because we were so focused on the music that when it came time to do the videos, we had not thought about cool ideas. So ideas were presented to us and often we would just pick the one that was like, well, this seems like, it'll be the most doable, the most possible, and we can stand behind it. But the other problem is, you, unlike music, you, you couldn't visualize it. You had to trust the director and his idea. Uh, and again, we were not film people. Um, we were not, again, my generation was not raised with the iPhone in front of your face every time you scratched your face. 
right? So whether you want to be a performer or not, you've probably had a camera in your face since you were a little toddler, right? Every, everybody's, so you're, you're, it's almost like, oh, there's a camera. You don't think about, there's 58,000 people that might see me picking my nose right now. You just, there's a camera and I'm just going to do what I do. And uh, I mean, I, it's hard for me to even explain it because I don't understand it. There's a lot of self-consciousness that goes out the window because of the time and technology that you were raised with your generation. So uh, we getting in front of a camera all day and being very self-conscious about what it's going to look like and giving the director enough cool footage of yourself to have to chop with, uh, edit together. Those are things that unless as an artist, you're practiced doing, maybe you grew up being a dancer, you grew up being in theater as a youth, like Justin Timberlake, right? Justin Timberlake comes, came from television, theater, child singer, actor. He then graduated into becoming a music artist. So he was, he was already very comfortable, I would assume, being in front of the camera, dancing, doing all those things, not us. So making those first videos as exciting as they were, were very challenging uh, and a huge exercise in trying to relax, being comfortable in one's own skin, recognizing the anxiety and trying to be a good performer in spite of your anxiousness. Uh, and uh, I'll, speaking for myself, it was a very challenging part of being in a band. I looked forward to getting better at it and I think I got better at it, but that's because I had the opportunity to make five videos and then, you know, miscellaneous filming opportunities. So yeah, thank you very much for uh, doing this interview with me. And Thanks, uh, Lucas. Quite enjoyed it. Now I have the uh, four of our song. I have the three of our songs for the uh, Ringo thing. I'm actually working on like a little, just kind of a little like epitaph for time takes time for a couple of people. So it's good yeah. to have that. Yeah, sweet. I'm, I'm very appreciative for your uh, enthusiasm for all this music from such a long time ago, and your very smart and uh, researched questions. I really appreciate you uh, spending the time necessary to be a good interviewer for this. Thank you very much. So yeah, uh, for Ringo Rama, I'm Lucas, and uh, see you next episode. Peace and love. <laughs>